The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Over the past 15 years, I've worked with grassroots civil society organizations, activists, small NGOs, large international NGOs, and UN agencies. And a consistent theme that has plagued me through this time is a frustration at the inefficiency of the aid and development sector and the negative impacts of this on the so-called beneficiaries. I've witnessed the delivery of projects that literally make no sense, are not designed in line with the community's wishes and have more negative outcomes than positive. I've witnessed incomprehensible amounts of money being wasted on development projects that fail. I've seen international UN agencies stand by and allow human rights violations, despite holding enormous political sway. I've seen countless small NGOs, the one I founded included, flounder and be ineffective, often with the best of intentions, but plagued by naivety and amateur practices. I've seen abuses of power, corruption, and nepotism across entities of all sizes and shapes. When I returned from living in Cambodia in 2008, I was completely burned out and disillusioned with the aid and development sector as a whole. I wanted nothing to do with it ever again, and I couldn't see how reform could happen. So 15 years later, why am I still here? Why did I stick around? I stuck around because I wanted to see change in how the sector operated. I even wanted to try to facilitate some of that change. And I hope that the work that I do, including with this podcast and unpacking some of these issues, will have some impact on improving practices, not just in the aid and development sector, but in all the various sectors it intersects with. The first time I spoke to today's guest, we ended up talking nonstop for over an hour about these issues. It's so important that we share the lessons we've learned through our lives and our careers, and today's guest's story is full of them. Professor Andrew McLeod is an experienced leader in the commercial, financial, academic, diplomatic, and humanitarian fields. He's a former high-level official of the United Nations, and before that, he worked with the International Committee of the Red Cross, serving in many conflict and natural disaster settings, including the former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Pakistan, Philippines, and others. He's a board director and chairman across three continents, and he currently chairs Griffin Law in the UK and the US, and co-founded its award-winning ethical litigation and Brexit advisory services business lines. He sits on the board of Risk Advisory Group, including a number of board committees, and is a director of Burnham Global Security. Andrew is also a visiting professor at King's College in London in the Department of War and Security Studies. He's also one of the founders of Hear Their Cries, 
a Swiss-based association aimed at eliminating child exploitation and abuse in the aid industry. In that role, he has been advising several governments and been outspoken in international media. He also maintains a commission as an officer in the Australian Army Reserve and is a keen swimmer, having won the silver medal for the 200 metres butterfly at the World Masters Games. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Andrew. Good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever time your listeners just happen to be listening to it. Lee, how are you? I'm good, good. How are you doing today? I'm plodding along just nicely. Andrew, let's jump in. I want to ask you something I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? That's an interesting question. If I can answer that question slightly differently and say what inspired me to do good, which will help me answer that question. My mother developed a brain tumour when I was 20 years old and I had to nurse her while she was dying. And after she died, one of her last wishes was for me to go back to university, which I did. And I'm sitting there as a 21-year-old thinking, what's the meaning of life? You know, what's the purpose of being here? And having a mother die young and helping nurse her while she's dying, it forces you to ask all those questions you normally ask when you're 60, 65, or at least a midlife crisis, but not in your 20s. So I was trying to figure out what the hell is the purpose of my life to justify not only my existence, but hers in a way, because, you know, so many people say, I just want a better future for my children, yada, yada, yada. One day a child has to wake up and say, well, we've got to do something to make it all worthwhile. And I was sitting in a uh, constitutional law lecture uh, given by a guest lecturer, Senator Michael Tate from Tasmania. He was then the Minister for Justice. And halfway through the lecture, he stopped and he said, I don't want to talk about constitutional law. I want to talk about having a law degree. And he said, having a law degree doesn't grant you a happy life and a wealthy existence. It imposes upon you an obligation to use your skills for the betterment of other people. And that hit me in the face. That resonated so strongly. I remember sitting bolt upright and going, that's it. Use your skills for the betterment of other people. The question then comes, on what scale? Do you do it locally? Do you do it nationally? Do you do it internationally? And you can choose any of those, whichever suits your own character the best. Well, I'm a narcissistic, arrogant bastard. So uh, I said, I'm going to try and save the world. And the only way to save the world is you go to the world's worst places and you try and make bad a little bit less bad. And uh, over time, I've evolved a saying. I say, you don't make the world better by working with good and keeping them good. You make the world better by working with bad and making them less bad. So you've got these ironies out there that uh, to actually do good, you've got to work with bad people. Yes, and, and that's something you've talked about a fair bit, both to me and, and in your book. But you've had a really fascinating and diverse career. You've been a lawyer. You worked at the International Committee of the Red Cross. You worked at the UN. Now you work a lot in the private sector. And you wrote a book about your life, published in 2013 and called A Life Half-Lived. And in the prologue, you said, the journey I have been on has taken me through every emotion. I've experienced joy and exhilaration like never before. At other times, I found myself crying in frustration. I have memories that make me smile and there are others that still sicken me many years later. I think it's a perfect introduction to your book and your story. Can you give us a breakdown of how you got into the aid sector to start with? Well, the beginning was that speech from Michael Tate motivating me to want to do that because when I was sitting there thinking, I want to go and save the world, um, I want to go to the worst parts of the world, how do you get there? 
Um, and it was actually in that lecture, as Michael continued to talk, that I was churning through all of this. And I said to myself, right, what I want to do is work for the International Committee for the Red Cross or the UN High Commission for Refugees. And the reason I, I chose those two while sitting there in that lecture theatre without doing research, etc., is because they had appeared to me on the surface to be the organisations that are regularly in the worst parts of the world delivering necessary aid and assistance to people in their most need. So in a sense, for someone who's wanting to do good, it's a lazy way out to go to the area with the highest need because you give a small amount to someone with nothing, it has a greater impact than giving a big amount to someone with everything. Take some of the stimulus packages that are going on post-coronavirus now in some countries, some of the stimulus packages are going to everyone. Now, what does a billionaire do with a $1,000 payment? You know, it doesn't even notice it. But what does someone on the breadline do with $1,000? You know, so in, in a sense, it's lazy. I mean, in a sense, it's exhilarating. But there's another side of it too, which I've always known, which is um, when you go to these dodgy parts of the world, gee, you learn. You meet people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different ways of doing things, and it forces you to uh, test your own paradigms. So the first part of, of getting the job in aid was actually making the decision to want to. The second part is, well, how do you do that? Now, some of your younger listeners might find this hard to believe, but this was in uh, 1989 I was making this decision. This is before the internet. So these days you just go on a jobs board and post your CV or chuck a couple of emails around. You could not do that in the 1980s or the 1990s when I came out of university. What you had to actually do was jump on planes and knock on doors. You actually had to fly to the other side of the world and take a punt. I thought, well, how do I convert my law degree to get me to Europe? So from Europe, I can look for the aid work that I want because both the ICRC, International Committee for the Red Cross, and the UN High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, are based in Geneva. So I needed to get to Geneva. How do you do that? Two things. One, I was doing my military training at the same time. Hence, I restructured my law degree into the laws of armed conflict and the Geneva Conventions, which is the international law not governed by the UN system. It's governed by the Red Cross, which is well outside and much, much older than the UN system. That was the humanitarian work. I was practical enough to also recognise I needed to have a practical skill to be earning money in Europe while I was looking for the job that I wanted. And just at that time, a fellow named David Bushby, who was a... Uh, a fellow law student with me, ultimately became a senator from Tasmania as well, came into my room one day and he said, hey, what do you think of this maritime law stuff? And I'd never heard of maritime law. Now, maritime law and human rights law, or law of armed conflict, are very similar. Maritime law is the most widely accepted private international law in the world, governed by two international treaties, the Hague Rules and the Hamburg Rules. And the laws of armed conflict is the most widely accepted public international law in the world, governed by the Geneva Conventions, and you could say perhaps the Genocide Convention, depending on how you define it. So actually, two areas, maritime law and human rights concentrating on war crimes, that at first seem very dissimilar, are actually very similar. With those two areas of law, you are non-jurisdictionally isolatable. You can work anywhere in the world. And both of them, because they're based on international conventions, are extremely slow-moving law, which for a lawyer is awesome because you don't have to relearn everything. If you're a tax lawyer, you're relearning the law every couple of weeks. So those two skills together ultimately would put me in London. Now, again, your young listeners will find this hard to wrap their heads around because this is a four-year plan to get somewhere to begin to look for the job. So I get myself over to London, doing a master's degree over there, organized to have a job in a shipping law firm 
and I'm trying to figure out how do I get into the International Committee for the Red Cross? And they're saying, we can't hire you, you're not Swiss, because back in those days, the ICRC mainly hired Swiss people. So I went to the British Red Cross, we can't hire you, you're not British, but you can be a volunteer. So I volunteered with them. And then I went to a shipping law conference in Amsterdam because I was a shipping lawyer. And I looked down the participant list as you do when you go to these conferences and everyone is an insurance company and a lawyer trying to screw money out of each other, except one person, Thomas Reitz, deputy head of the transport division of the International Committee for the Red Cross. And I'm like, what the hell is he doing there? So I stood up, walked over and introduced myself. I'm like, Thomas, what are you doing here? And he said, we are the biggest shippers of cargo in the world to war zones. And all of these contracts have war exclusion clauses. And we need to find a way of getting around that. I'm like, well, that don't make sense. Give me these contracts. I'll rewrite them for you. So myself and my supervising partner, we rewrote them overnight, took them back to him the next day. And I said, here you go, Thomas, this this will help you. And he said, how much? I said, no, no, no. I've been a volunteer for the British Red Cross and Australian Red Cross. I've actually always wanted to work for you guys, saying no charge. Work for us, doing what? And I said, well, I've done this and I've done that. And I've got a master's degree in the law of armed conflict. He said, do you have a CV? I said, actually, I do. And passed it over to him. And as luck would have it, whilst Thomas and I are chatting in Amsterdam, at that very moment in Belgrade, the dissemination delegate, the guy in charge of laws of armed conflict, et cetera, for the Red Cross delegation in Belgrade, quit and by the time thomas got back to geneva he walked into a meeting in which they were literally saying where do we find another english-speaking lawyer who wants to work for us who's prepared to move to belgrade and they jumped on the phone will you work for us we'll uh, shoehorn the british red cross they will hire you and they will end you to us and I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. They said, can you be there next week? I said, no, I've got to give four weeks notice in my, my law firm. They said, will you be there in four weeks and one day? I said, yep, absolutely. And one funny anecdote, before I actually got there, they said I had to do some pre-deployment training. And the only one that was going on at the, that fat, fitted the timing was with the Austrian Red Cross. So they flew me over to Vienna. And few people know that the Red Cross, its principal role is to act as the medical auxiliary to the National Armed Forces. So there's a very strong relationship between the military and the Red Cross so that training was done with the Austrian army and we were coming away from this pre-deployment training in one of the Austrian army's tanks and I'm chatting to one of the tank drivers and he said you want some french fries and like I'd love to he said we've measured it up this tank just fits in the McDonald's drive-through so as we're coming back from the training back to where we were staying overnight we took a tank through the McDonald's drive-through and strangely enough McDonald's didn't charge us for the french fries. (laughs) Nice. Andrew, you have had some pretty amazing and I imagine confronting experiences through your work in conflict zones. I read in your book that you were present in the remote Central African town of Gisenyi. Did I say that right? Gisenyi? On August 2nd, 1998, when Rwandan Mm. armed forces invaded the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's correct. Can you tell us about that? What was that like? And it was interesting. Uh, one of the principal roles of the International Committee for the Red Cross, for whom I was working at the time, is to disseminate international humanitarian law. That's a fancy way of saying teaching the law of armed conflict to soldiers. And people say, isn't that a waste of time? People break the law all the time. And I say, well, let's do a little analogy. Let's look at speeding. It's hands up who has never, ever broken the speeding laws. And of course, everyone has, either inadvertently or deliberately done 55 in a 50 zone or a 120 in a 100 zone, what have you. Speeding laws aren't aimed to eliminate speeding, it's to reduce speeding. 
And the international community is not naive enough. Okay, so you have a series of laws to regulate the conduct of hostilities. Does that mean no one will ever break the law? No, it doesn't. But through education and training and enforcement, you hope to reduce the number of civilian casualties in conflict. We were, as the Red Cross, having difficulty getting access to the Rwandan military until, to cut a very, very long story, very, very short. Um, I beat General Paul Kagame in a game of billiards in the Rwandan army officers mess one night, which broke the ice between us, to which I said, okay, here's the deal. If you let me do law of armed conflict training program with your military, we will do first aid training with your military and give everyone a first aid kit too to which people say, well, isn't that picking sides in the conflict? And I'm like, no, because the principal role of the Red Cross is to provide first aid to wounded soldiers, wounded sailors, and later civilians. The first aid delivery is the call. And the Rwandan army wanted first aid kits and first aid training for their soldiers. And the quid pro quo is that we got to do law of armed conflict training program. Now, People misunderstand the Geneva Convention sometimes. They say the Geneva Conventions is a series of prohibitions, which it is, what you can't do in conflict. But it's also a series of allowances, what you can do in conflict. If you're part of an organised military force undertaking military operations against another military force, then you are allowed to, in the words of the Convention, participate directly in hostilities. That's a fancy way of saying kill. What you do when you're trying to get an armed force to comply with the Geneva Conventions is show them the benefits they get from it as well as the prohibitions. So Kagame got that and he actually understood the politics of wanting fewer contraventions of the law of armed conflict as well. So he gave us permission to train every single non-commissioned officer in the basics of the law of armed conflict, how to take prisoners, how to do corner and searches, how to do a minor offensive operation, a minor defensive operation in compliance with the law. He then said to us, um, uh, we would like you to accelerate your program to such and such a date. And I started to get curious as to why. I was then in the uh, only functioning swimming pool in Rwanda at the time because I used to be a swimmer in Inwalk Kagame with Yoweri Museveni, the president of Uganda. And I'm like, eh, there's no state visit between Uganda and Rwanda right now. What the hell is going on? Jumped on the phone to my colleague in Uganda. What the hell is happening in Uganda after you do your military training? It's like everyone who's gone through my training program has been deployed to the southwest. So I then started to look at where my people had been deployed and they were all deployed to the northwest and the southwest. And we put two and two together and we said, they're going to invade Congo. And the reason they were invading Congo is few people understand that many of the refugee camps set up in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo following the genocide in Rwanda in 94 and the ongoing violence afterwards. The inter-Ahamwe militias who participated in the genocide, who perpetrated the genocide, who killed a million people, were amongst those refugees and continuing ongoing genocidal attacks across the border. In fact, when I was there, there were still 800 civilian casualties a week from ongoing genocidal attacks. Now, the Rwandan government kept on saying to the international community, do something about this, do something about this. And the international community didn't because they actually misunderstood the nuances that were going on there. And there's a, a magnificent short document called Dispatches from Disaster Zones written by the BBC journalist Nick Gowing, who describes how the international media are arriving one news cycle too late, misunderstanding what was going on, therefore misinforming the global policymakers about what was going on, actually set up the environment for what became the 10-year civil war in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, which arguably may never have happened if only we had have secured that border between Rwanda and Democratic Republic of Congo early on before it then evolved into a commercial conflict involving minerals and mines and wealth and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, because I had to, had to finish the um, course by such and such a date, because I knew everyone was going to the 
north and the southwest of Rwanda. I had a very good guess that on that date they were going to invade. Now, the operational principles of the Red Cross require confidentiality as well as neutrality, impartiality and humanity. So what do you do with this information if you've got it in a confidential context? So I called my my boss in Geneva, a guy named Yves Decor, and we said, listen, we can't tell anyone publicly, but what we can do is pre-prepare and stockpile, which we did on both sides of the border. So what I then decided to do was on that night, because I knew what was going to happen, I would be in Gisenyi that night. And in military terms, watched one army advance to contact across an international border into another army. I cannot listen to fireworks as a result. The sound of it takes me straight back to that jungle on that night um, and the things that I uh, saw and smelt. And they weren't good memories, but it was my job. And on that, Andrew, you know, I'm sure that that's not the only experience that you've had that, that, that is along those lines. How do you personally cope with processing the, what, what is essentially trauma of witnessing these conflict activities? It's quite complex. On one hand, you've got to turn your emotions off. People said to me in 2010, when I finally left the UN, we thought you'd be extremely emotionally intelligent from this, but you've actually got no emotion right now. And I said, yeah, I've got to turn it back on because you can't be a good aid worker and be emotional because if you are, you'd shoot yourself very, very quickly because you're literally making decisions on life and death and certainly making lots of decisions on quality of life. If you've got enough food to feed one valley and you've got two valleys to feed, um, you've actually got to choose which value. So you're actually impacting on quality of life. You're impacting on life itself. You're seeing people around you die. You're making decisions about who you can and who you can't help. You're smelling it. And it's the smell of death that really hits. So you learn to protect yourself, or certainly I learned to protect myself by putting very, very big emotional walls up. And then all of this trauma goes into this box and it sits inside your brain. And I have an ongoing fear. That, that one day it'll release. And if it releases in an out of control way, it can be very, very damaging. I've been very fortunate that a couple of times it has snuck out. I've had some very good friends around me at the right time. When I first came back from Rwanda, I was actually quite traumatized. And there was a, a very, very good friend of mine I've known since childhood named Sarah O'Regan. She said, come and stay with me for a couple of days. Just completely plutonic, very, very good friends. And it was one of those safe environments that I could actually lose it absolutely break down into tears and she's known me since I was a small child well, since she was a small child and, and and a hug from someone like that you know helps you put it all back in the box doesn't make it go away it helps you put it all back in the box and releasing it in a safe way helps you recognize when it might be coming out again and you've really got to concentrate on it because there's a lot of damage in there there's a lot of damage in there I want to flip that around to a concept you talked about in your book that kind of comes as a a result of psychological trauma from experiencing these conflict environments, you talk about degraded decision-making amongst aid workers and, and how what I'm imagining is putting all of that in a box, putting it all inside, turning off the emotion actually switches off other parts of your brain that help you make good decisions, right? And how does that affect you know, decision-making, not only in your personal life, but decision-making in your professional life when that decision-making impacts the lives of others and, and in fact, whether they live or die. It's true and it, and it manifests in every individual differently. So one set of degraded um, decision-making does, as you say, happen in people's personal life and in your professional life. And, uh, you know, I made a real clanger 
um, near the time of um, Rwanda. And there were only uh, two white guys allowed in the Rwandan army officers' mess. It was me and a, a guy named uh, Rick Scow, who was the uh, US military attache. And there was a map hanging on the wall of the officers' mess, the Unimir map of Rwanda, United Nations Assistance Mission in Rwanda. And there's a little blue dot in the southwest of Rwanda that has written next to it, Source du Nil, Source of the Nile. Now, the Source of the Nile River has been a controversy for years. So what do you get when you've got two white guys in the Rwandan army officers' mess, too many beers, and degraded decision-making staring at a map that says source of the River Nile when the Nyuenge State Forest was then still controlled by the Interahamwe militia who were launching ongoing genocidal attacks and you'd have to be a crazy nuts, insane idiot to want to go there. Answer is, you go there. Now, the Red Cross has, International Committee for the Red Cross, has six golden rules. You never, ever go somewhere without telling anyone, never go somewhere after sunset, never go before sunrise, never travel in someone else's vehicle, never go anywhere declared off limits for security reasons, and never, ever, ever carry a weapon. And that last one is extremely important because the greatest defence that the Red Cross has is that we're not a threat to anyone. I said to a soldier once who said, I don't believe you don't carry weapons. It's like, well, if I come at you with a pistol, what are you going to come with me at? He said, a rifle. I said, if I come at you with a rifle, what are you going to come at me with? A machine gun. I said, if I come at you with a machine gun, what are you going to come at me with? He said, a tank. I said, I don't win that one, do I? I only ever guarantee my security if people know I never carry a weapon. Anyway, to go to the Nyuenge State Forest, it was declared off limits for security reasons. We left before sunrise, came back after sunset, travelled in his armoured vehicle. We carried weapons because, well, put two and two together about how you get to the source of the Nile. So I broke all the six security rules and it was a bad decision. There's no doubt professionally I made a very, very bad decision. That having been said, I went back to Rwanda last year. Fascinating to see how well that country has progressed. And I went down to the Nyuenge State Forest. Not only is there no inter-Ahamwe militia shooting at you, it's completely safe. There is now a marked walking trail to get to the source of the Nile. And there's a visitor centre. And in the visitor centre, it talks about the first white people that went to the source of the River Nile in the year 2002. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, they weren't the first. And I have the photo to prove it. The first were four years before that, and I was one of them. <laughs> That's an amazing story. It reminds me of another part in your book where you, you're talking about, I think it's a training where people were talking about why they do the work that they do. And someone said, it is not that we want to kill ourselves, but sometimes I think we wish to put ourselves in a circumstance where someone will do it for us. Yeah, that was at a workshop for emergency managers. So after I left the Red Cross, I did a short stint in Australian politics, and then I finally did join the UN High Commission for Refugees. And the WEM, the Workshop for Emergency Management, is for the elite first responders when you go out to a um, new rapid onset emergency, the people who go into the real shitholes. And it's funny, you see aid workers delivering food and supplies in the middle of a conflict and you think it's normal, but you can only deliver food and supplies if all the people carrying guns let you, because if they don't let you, they shoot you. Someone's got to go in first and negotiate all that up. And that's what the people on the Workshop for Emergency Managers do. So it's a, a um, special type of person, shall we put it that way, that's prepared to put themselves in that sort of harm over and over again. Anyway, there was a, um, a Dutch peacekeeper who 
was one of the peacekeepers um, around Srebrenica at the time of the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia, when some of your listeners might recall, others might not, we, um, the invading Serb forces came in, um, took a um, hundred or so UN peacekeepers hostage and murdered um, a few thousand Muslim men and boys. And it deeply traumatised the soldiers, the, the UN soldiers, because they were there to help and they were helpless. And when you are forced to stand by and watch people you were supposed to be helping die, it actually has a huge trauma. And when he got back home, he found that there was no psychologist or psychiatrist that understood that dynamic and could give him the mental health assistance that he needed. So he went off and trained to be a psychiatrist, psychologist specifically to deal with people that have dealt with that sort of trauma that aid workers have. And as a quick aside, we do know now post-traumatic stress disorder that happens in soldiers and returning service personnel, and we do a lot of work now for returning soldiers. One big, big gap in our mental health service is still returning aid workers. And coming home is much, much harder than going away. And um, a big shout out here to... um, Uh, Health Minister Greg Hunt and former Prime Minister Julia Gillard, who's uh, chair of Beyond Blue, as I've um, facilitated a discussion between them both to have additional funding in Australia put to Beyond Blue specifically to deal with issues around returning aid workers. And we need to continue that. One of my ways of dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder is to try and fix the larger problems. It's just how my brain works. Anyway, um, so we're sitting in this workshop for emergency management. and This psychologist who had been a peacekeeper was doing first individual sessions with us and then one group session and he asked the question why do you want to be aid workers and it started going around the room now these are very experienced and very very detailed aid workers and it got to one woman i won't say say her name out loud and she's the one that said that line she said it's not that we want to kill ourselves it's we want to put ourselves in a circumstance where someone will do it for us and the whole room went silent and you could see on everyone's face to a greater or lesser degree that resonated and it, it really is a fine line between bravery and suicidal. Very, very fine line. Absolutely. And I think, you know, whether or not you're going into a conflict situation or a post-disaster situation or just generally going into a vastly different uh, culture, community, you know, income levels, socioeconomic status, it's so different that it is very hard to adjust. And 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 it's not hard to adjust going there. It's extremely hard to adjust coming home. absolutely. And I remember, again, coming back from Rwanda, there's a little uh, IGA supermarket in Bridport Street, uh, Albert Park. Uh, I remember going in there, I don't know, buying olive oil or something. I walked in on a little kid having a tantrum with his mother about the wrong brand potato chips and i just lost it you know it's potato chips kid you've got all your arms you've got all your legs you know what's your problem and it's and it really is hard coming home to australia a country which by many measures is the best or one of the best countries in the world one of the best public transport systems one of the best health systems highest median wealth in the world second highest average wealth in the world and hearing people complain about anything. No Australian really has any right to complain about goddamned anything. This is a, a phenomenally good country that needs ongoing fine tuning, but doesn't need radical change. And some of your listeners are now going to say, but climate change, but poverty, but this, but that. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
compare it to the rest of the world is what I'm telling you. And you don't compare to England, the United States. You know, one of the problems that I've had is I've been to Rwanda. I've seen humanity at, at its worst. I know how good this place is. You know, when I came back from Rwanda, my stepmother said to me, oh, welcome back to the real world. I said, no, 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 no. This is welcome back to fantasy land. I've been in the real world and Australia does live in a fantasy land. Now that's not to say we should be blase about it, not fight to protect it, which we should and fight to improve it, which we should, but let's get a sense of perspective here. Absolutely. Andrew, I want to pose a question to you. You've, you've worked kind of across the spectrum of the aid and development sector. Mm. Are NGOs and UN agencies inherently good? They like to think they are and they've got great rhetoric. But when you look at the results on the ground, the reason I left the aid industry is because I think it is a net harm. If I thought it was a net good, I would still be in it. Yet, is there good work done by the aid industry? Well, yes, there is, but I call them islands of excellence. Most of it is neutral and a significant proportion of it is harmful. And it's harmful in a number of ways. One harm is the unintended consequence of crushing innovation in the small and medium enterprise private sector. Now, without sounding like a right-wing love child of Newt Gingrich and Sarah Palin, the only way you can create long-term sustainable employment is to have a vibrant private sector at the small and medium enterprise level. Local shops, local businesses, people doing stuff. The majority of people in Australia are employed by small and medium enterprises. And if you say Australia is one of the better countries in the world, then your objective for Rwanda, Democratic Republic of Congo, wherever it is, should be to be like Australia. I.e., you've got to get small and medium enterprise going. But if you keep delivering free food and supplies and goods to a community, how does the private sector start because you can't compete against a free distribution and people in the non-for-profit movement many of them are working for the non-for-profit movement because they are ideologically opposed to profit so they're not either going to want to nor would they understand how to set up an ongoing investment stream which creates businesses which creates employment and you can only have sustainable long-term employment well-regulated employment and well-remunerated employment if there is profit if there is no profit then business can't thrive but if you accept that the way to bring people out of poverty is to give them well-regulated and well-remunerated employment then you've got to create that employment which means you've got to get investment which means you've got to foster the private sector to go in there which means you've got to stop free distributions at some point and I often describe refugee camps or displaced persons camps as places which must be survivable but must never be comfortable because the moment you make them comfortable, they become a disincentive for people to actually get on with their own lives, which is why you create multi-generational refugee camps in Tanzania, for example, because the aid industry needs to give stuff out for free to justify their own purpose. And strangely enough, that they are incentivized to failure. Because if you actually shut refugee camps down because people go home because you've got peace, what happens to all the aid workers? Absolutely. You've also written another another kind of satirical book called Doing Good by Mistake. And in it, you write about a fictional organisation which 
started as a group of board aristocrats who needed an excuse for war tourism and decided to set up a society designed to bring relief to victims of war. And it's set in a, in a fictional war-torn country where there's civil war, ethnic cleansing, genocide. And what you just said reminded me of, of a, a scenario you paint in there where there's a story of building houses with tinned pork, with cans of tinned pork. And the question asked is, well, why would we do that? And, you know, the local population in this country, in this fictional country is Muslim. And the answer given to the question of why is because a donation of a million tins of tinned pork from the American Pig Farmers United to Save the World organization was earmarked for that location only. So it didn't matter how it was used as long as it was used. Mm. It's a fictional story, but it's based on truth. There, there were parts of the Muslim uh, areas of Bosnia where pork was delivered. There was a water tanker delivered to a flood zone. There was diet food sent to Ethiopia during the famine. There were 8,000 pairs of women's size six high heel shoes sent to Northern Serbia during the conflict. And all of this was for the donor to obtain the tax deduction back in their home jurisdiction. What it did in the environment where we were is clog up warehouse space. When the earthquake hit in Pakistan, I said to the Pakistan government, please say to the diaspora, don't send secondhand clothes, just send money. Because if you flood the market with secondhand clothes, firstly, often people don't want them or they're culturally inappropriate. But secondly, it undermines the wholesale market of clothing. You're much better using cash, bringing cash into the environment restart the local economy by getting local tailors, local stitches, etc., to make the culturally appropriate clothing. In the end, the Pakistani diaspora in London donated over six tons of secondhand clothes that were air freighted by Pakistan International Airways to Pakistan for us to incinerate. Wow. You know, a lot of well-intentioned amateurs don't realise how much harm they're causing. And let's put it in the Australian context. What's the name of the comedian that's got the 51 million bucks for the rule Celeste class? Yes. Celeste, yeah. And now you find it can't be used in the way she promised. Oh, I'll send it to South Australia. I'll send it to Victoria as well. And my plea for well-meaning amateurs always is, for gosh sake, listen to the professionals, please. There are too many aid organisations. There is too much duplication. There are too many well-meaning amateurs. I've been saying since the mid-1990s, please don't go to orphanages. There are children now that are procreated for the specific purpose of selling them to orphanages so they can be the prop to make a 19-year-old Australian guy or girl on their year off feel better. There are some really evil people in the world, but there are some really well-meaning, naive amateurs that, that have no idea how much damage they're causing. They're like Mr. Bean driving down the street thinking he's doing fine, not seeing all the car crashes he's causing behind them. And there are a lot of well-meaning people that do that over and over and over again. Great, you go somewhere and build a school. Okay, who's now paying the ongoing costs for that school? The teachers, the maintenance, who's paying for the pens, who's paying for the pencils? Unless you do it all as a package, it's not going to work. I want to talk about the role of the sector in this and, and the, the rhetoric of what the sector sells. 
the sector sells hope. Yes, and you said that. You said they don't sell development, they sell hope. Take child sponsorships. The average child sponsorship is $23 a month. It goes for 11.3 years. It's $3,118 per child, according to two international studies, somewhere between 0.3 years in school and three years in school. Is $3,118 well spent to get an extra 0.3 years in school? No, it's not. You could do much better with that money. Um, But not only that, is the length of time a child is in school the right measure? And I get really controversial and say, no, it's not. Because the reason you do health, the reason you do education, the reason you do water supply is to break the cycle of poverty. What's the one meaningful indicator about breaking the cycle of poverty? And that is when someone becomes an adult, do they have a well-regulated, well-remunerated job? If they don't, they're still poor. If they do, they've broken the cycle of poverty. So the measure to see whether a child's sponsorship is work. And there have been 3 million children that have passed through sponsorship since 1953, a million of those through World Vision alone, is to ask how many of those 3 million children have got a job? once they've become an adult. And when I challenged World Vision on this, their response was, we don't know, we don't measure that. We don't even measure what the key outcome criteria is. So how do you know if your program's working? Or even worse, how do you know if your spending has become replacement spending or supplemental spending? What do I mean by that? Okay, we put $100 into this village. Does that mean the government says, great, here's the government's 100, here's your 100, $200 into this village, or does the government go, great, now I can withdraw 100? Mm. You know, so you, you, you've got to look at the facts on the ground and see whether it's making any difference. But what child sponsorship does is it sells you hope. I think I am doing good. But they don't teach you how to measure whether you are or are not actually doing good, which is to watch how the child evolves into an adult and whether you've actually successfully broken the cycle of poverty. Or even more damningly, how many recipients of child sponsorships are themselves children of former recipients? of child sponsorships. And people don't know that because they don't measure the right stuff because they're not actually understanding what they're trying to create. And what you need to create in the developing world is something like Australia, a well-regulated mixed economy. Do you think there's a place here though for better questions from donors, from better expectations from people who are signing up to these child sponsorship programs? Absolutely there are. And people have, have got to take responsibility. Don't Don't take anything that I say as being 100% anti-aid all the time. I think we need a revolutionary rethink of what we do about international development. Now, if you start at the macro level, 50% of capital flows from OECD to non-OECD economies, rich countries to poor countries, goes through the private sector. 30% goes through remittances, the expatriate nurse sending money home, et cetera, essentially the private sector. And only 17% goes through aid and philanthropy. So aid and philanthropy is not only not the best spent pot of money, it's nowhere near the biggest pot of money. In fact, it's the smallest. So what we need to do is say, how do we get better collaboration between those three great capital flows, private sector, remittances, and uh, aid and philanthropy? And my view is the single role of aid and philanthropy should be to create the enabling uh, environment to allow private sector investment to flow. One of the things that, or five of the things that Rwanda did very, very well, which allowed private sector investment to come in, liberated the exchange rate mechanism, allowed for repatriation of profit, zero tolerance for corruption, enforceability of contracts under local laws, 
and that created an investment climate of certainty. If you do that, you attract that 50% of capital to come in. In a way, if you set the regulatory environment right, you create long-term, sustainable, well-regulated, well-remunerated employment. What the aid community should be doing is sitting down with the profit community and saying, what do we need to create for you to come in and invest and thrive so we, the aid community, can leave? But there's two big problems with that. One, the aid community doesn't like talking to the private sector because many people in the aid community are ideologically opposed to profit. And two, the aid community doesn't want to leave because if they leave, where's their job? Right. And then you get whole countries, generally post-conflict or post-disaster countries that are entirely reliant on the aid sector. Yeah. One of the reasons that Rwanda has done so well is because they harboured a deep resentment to the international community post-1994, blaming the international community for allowing the genocide to take place with some validity. You know, when uh, General uh, Dallaire sent the facts back to the Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping, who was Kofi Annan at the time, saying, give me 5,000 soldiers, I can stop a genocide, we knew the genocide was being planned in Rwanda. And the international community, led by the French, chose deliberately not to respond. So to that extent, the Rwandans were absolutely right in saying that the international community turned it back on them. And we love to say after World War II, never again. If only we knew what Hitler was doing, we would have stopped it. What crap. We knew in advance that the the Rwandan Hutus were going to have a genocide. We consciously as an international community decided not to intervene. I was one of the first people in the UN in the early 2000s to write a formal report declaring um, Darfur a genocide. Now, the, the reason that's important is the Genocide Convention doesn't just allow you to intervene to stop a genocide. It imposes an obligation on the international community to do so. So when something is declared a genocide, because we said never again in World War II, and then we said, oops, we really meant never again, but we forgot Rwanda. So, okay, let's do it a third time now. Declare Darfur a genocide. Now, what did the international community do with that? Almost nothing, except guess who? Guess who immediately sent soldiers to try and stop it? Rwanda. Because Rwanda take it seriously when they say never again. Right, right. It's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I spend a lot of time living and working in Cambodia and, you know, obviously that genocide happened after World War II as well. And Cambodia, when I first went there, was very reliant on aid and that shifted somewhat over the years to being reliant on tourism and aid and I think that you know tourism is a result of that aid investment as well and now that that's tourism has stopped right now I think there's a huge negative impact on those communities that have been kind of reliant on aid and then the economy has started up and they've become reliant on tourism and now that has gone. Well, although Cambodia has been slowly evolving a, a good mixed economy, there are question marks around some of its governance and human rights record, of course. But Cambodia has done a, a, a lot over the last 10, 15 years. Last time I, I was in Cambodia actually was in January. But, you know, there's an interesting evolution. As you engage in um, economic activity, engage in the global commerce, Um, you are going to be vulnerable to a global commercial shock. 
And I, I don't think we can draw a general lesson out of corona because um, is it only countries like Cambodia that are suffering? Well, Absolutely visit, not. Know, visit, visit Kangaroo Island, go up to the Gold Coast. And um, I've been saying for some weeks now, the tourism industry will lead a high court challenge against the state borders closing because by my reading of the Australian constitution, it's unconstitutional to do so. Mm, interesting. Andrew, I want to go back to early in your career as a lawyer when you had a role defending pedophile priests from the Catholic Church. And you wrote in your book, while visiting the priests in prison, I found that many of the crimes that they had committed were greater than those they had been accused of in court. It was shocking. Often the priests described in disgusting detail the actions that they had perpetrated, the complete lack of guilt because their sins had been confessed and forgiven was staggering. It was the first of several events that made me skeptical of institutionalized religion to question the existence of God and ultimately come to the conclusion that I believe God does not exist. Yeah, I say God fails the logical test for me. So it was a combination of things. I mean, to listen to those priests admit what they've done without guilt, you know, that was the astonishing bit and still try to justify to themselves, you know, the child wanted it or they were happy or, or it was in their advantage or they were predating me. I mean, the number of priests that say that, oh, that child, oh, that, that child was hitting on me. But where the real turning point came was, you know, that was sitting in the back of my mind. I was in Nyatarama Church, south of Kigali, with three and a half thousand rotting human corpses at my feet. Uh, it was one of the places where the Interahamway had pushed in people and machine gunned them, hand grenaded them, macheted them. Uh, and the smell of death never leaves you. And I remember looking at a baby's head, which was on the top of these corpses, just, just the head, not the rest of the body. And I remember thinking to myself, the theologians tell me God is merciful and all-powerful. Whichever God, pick your God. You know, God, God is all-powerful and, and merciful. Well, if he allowed this to happen to that baby, then he's not merciful. And if he is merciful and this happened to that baby, then he's not all powerful. So to my mind, God fails the logical test. Now, people of, of belief will object to that. Theologians will object to that. I've, I've actually just finished a master's degree in theology because I'm fascinated with religion as a political control. And it is an enormously powerful political tool. And you can see that all around the world, all, all through history, how leaders, great and, and evil, have manipulated religion for their purposes. And I just say to people of faith, I will respect your faith and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. So long as you respect my lack of faith and don't tell me I'm wrong as well. This has been an incredibly moving episode to work on and there's still so much left to unpack with Andrew that we're going to come back for part two next week. I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about Andrew's current work in the fight against sexual exploitation of children. I hope you'll join me. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.